Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. First Kings chapter 17, part two. And for context in the book of Kings, where we're at right now, uh, Jeroboam has taken over the northern kingdom and the kings of Israel have one by one been leading the people of Israel further away from what God asked them to do for worship and making up their own kind of worship. And, and when you get to Ahab, it got even worse because that worship didn't even have anything to do with Yahweh anymore. And they started to actually go after other gods. So when Ahab shows up and, and Elijah then rises up, God raises up a person just like he did back in the Judges. And Elijah goes walking into King Ahab and says, there's going to be drought in the land and there's going to be drought until I say there's not drought because God told me that. And uh, he then goes away and disappears. We're going to find out that Ahab sent out scouts everywhere trying to find Elijah um, oddly enough, like the implication there is to kill him, but you wouldn't want to kill somebody when the drought's not going to stop till they say something. You'd want to torture them. But that's just a strategy decision that Ahab has to make. Elijah goes out into the wilderness. God provides for him. He's eating the crow food that comes by. That's where we're at in Kings. Either way, you get this image of Elijah just living off the land. He's rough. He's fearless when he talks to Ahab. And he calls people to repentance, which is... Um, a lot like John the Baptist and Jesus. So when people say, who is John the Baptist? They say, this was the spirit of Elijah come to tell us to repent. And Elijah does that. He does it with Ahab. He does it publicly. And then we'll pick up in verse 7 of 1 Kings 17. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to him and said, Arise, go to Zarephah, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose, he went to Zarephah, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, please bring me a little water and a cup that I might drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Now he'd been eating bread from a bird, for the, so this would be kind of a treat to get it from a human being at this point. It had to be tough waiting on the Lord in verse 7 and watching the brook dry up. Because God brought me here, I'm supposed to be here, he's giving me my provision, but you could visibly see the brook drying up over time, and, and for a lot of people that would cause doubt, because as your thirst goes up, you start to wonder what God's doing, and why he's doing it that way. And, and we see this image of just a believer in the wilderness, watching things dry up around them, but knowing they're where God wants them to be. Uh, which tells you a lot about Elijah's character. Notice he doesn't even pray for rain even though he's thirsty and the brook is drying up, he's not going to pray for a miracle for himself. He's waiting for some sort of repentance from King Ahab. So until that shows up, he's going to endure the struggles too. However, the word of the Lord says to him in verse 8, you need to go to Zarephath. In other words, where I've put you now, I'm going to move you to another place and provide for you there. First, he's in the wilderness, but if you look at where Zarephath is, it's actually, it belongs to Sidon, so it's right in the middle of Gentile territory. In fact, Jezebel was a Sidonite, remember? 
So he's going into her hometown, or homeland, not hometown, and spending some time there. Each move, then, is a, pay, a practice for Elijah to obey and observe obedience to the Lord, doing things that aren't apparently what he thinks he might, should be doing. Because most prophets think, i got to prophesy to Israel, uh, except for Jonah, of course. He goes to Nineveh. But Elijah's being told to go places that aren't Israel at this point, the wilderness east of the Jordan, and now Sidon on the other side of things. In each of these steps, Elijah's faith is growing. Because he's got, he spent all that time getting fed by birds. Now when he goes to Sidon and meets this widow, he's seeing that, again, God has everything orchestrated, but in really small ways. And I think this is tough as, as he's hearing it. Zarephah is, is uh, in the Hebrew, it's refinery. So likely kind of an industrial town of the Sidonians. Um, it's closer to the sea. And God's got Elijah in a re, this refining space for him to learn how to be close to the Lord and live with this other person. In the wilderness, he had no companionship. When he goes to Sidon, he's got the woman for companionship. And Jesus uses this story to explain that God can choose anybody he wants to serve him. So specifically in Luke 4.24, Jesus says, Truly there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, drought. And there was great famine throughout the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon to the woman who was a widow. In other words, God can send us anywhere to anybody at any time. And that's kind of God's prerogative. So where Elijah might be thinking he should be preaching to the Israelites, God sends him somewhere totally different. And he obeys it. So you'd think God might pick for provision because the brook is drying up, that he'd pick a rich widow. But he doesn't pick a rich widow. And we see that right away in, in verse uh, 10. When he gets to the gate of the city, she's there gathering sticks. Rich people don't go out and gather sticks for heat. There wasn't a famine of sticks, right? There wasn't a shortage of firewood. In fact, in a drought, you're going to find more and more dead branches and wood. But she's out gathering them herself, which speaks to her poverty, her destitution. And then he makes this very odd request. Instead of saying hello, he asks for a cup of water in the middle of a drought. So Elijah, like you get very little personality here. He's kind of a brass tacks character. Like he gets there and says exactly what he needs to. He makes the request for her to share. And then in verse 12, so she said, as the Lord your God lives, I don't have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple sticks that I might go in, prepare it for myself and my son that we might eat it and die. He doesn't send her to a rich widow. He sends her to an extremely poor widow who's ready to watch her and her son die of starvation. So destitution, absolute destitution. Verse 9 says God commanded her, but it, she doesn't seem aware of what God's prepared for her life. I think this is interesting, being a Gentile myself. Sometimes God has prepared people to do the work of the Lord, and they don't even know that that's happening yet. But something was in her heart because when Elijah asked for the cup of water, notice that she just gets the cup of water. So she's the type of person that's generous even though she doesn't have much to give. And I just, that kind of story, that kind of heart is what God looks for. And you can see why he picked this woman. God operates very lightly and works to prepare the heart well in advance. Notice that she says, your God, as the Lord your God lives. She doesn't say this is her God. We don't know that she has any faith in Yahweh whatsoever. So the ministry of Elijah is to work with one woman and her son instead of the entire nation of Israel. 
And you wonder if Elijah was humbled by this or if he's just okay with not having to deal with Ahab for a while. And the lower responsibility was just refreshing. So she recognizes Yahweh. She knows the name Yahweh. She uses it in verse 12. But it's Elijah's Yahweh. It's the Hebrew God. It's your God. It's not my God. Notice that Elijah doesn't bicker with her, doesn't argue with her, nothing, right? He just accepts the fact that she's not there yet. But, and this idea that we're going to eat it and die, I think she's calmly letting him know, like, I'm going to be giving you the last of what I have. Yet she gives it. Verse 13, and Elijah said to her, don't go, do not fear, go and do as you've said and make me a small cake from it first. So don't just bring me the glass of water. I want you to make me a cake with that flour you got and bring it to me and afterwards make some for yourself and your son. That's a pretty huge ask in a time of famine. You think about what Elijah's asking her to do right now. And then the, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, verse 14, he puts everything in context of the Lord. So she's recognized that he has a God, and he's about to say, I want you to see what my God can do. At the some level, what he's doing with her right now is exactly what he does with the prophets on the hill at a much larger scale. I stand with the God of Israel. Watch what my God can do. And he does it with this conviction and authority. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, verse 14, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she had to trust that this was going to happen without any evidence to trust him. Just some strange Hebrew guy comes walking into town and wants to eat all her food. But as she does this, verse 15, God's going to unleash one of the sweetest miracles that we see in the Bible. The gentle, soft provision of God day in, day out. The bills got paid at the end of the month. Verse 15, so she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. So when she went away to did this and did according to the word of Elijah, she's doing it with a complete sense of hospitality. And it wasn't just the Hebrews that knew what hospitality was. There were people in these pagan nations that understood the principle of hospitality. And that's still the case in the Middle East today. That when you have a visitor come into your town, you take care of them. So it's a beautiful thing. It's a sweet thing. And Elijah learns for many days to praise God for his daily bread. So we get this phrase, give us this day our daily bread. And that comes right from the story of Elijah. That I don't know where it's coming from, but that it just never seems to run out. Also, this idea of the bread and the oil are going to endure as images of God's provision and God's spirit. Jesus gets anointed with oil and he breaks the bread and says, this is my body. So you have this imagery going on with Elijah too at the same time as it being a great story. This had to be a mountaintop experience for Elijah. No, he's not talking to Ahab anymore, but just day after day, this woman and her son are being fed and taken care of. And then a trial shows up. Again, this is the same as going out to the wilderness and seeing God provide for you, but then the brook starts to dry up. And that's when God tests our faith. He's told you to go here and be here, but now it's tough and it's difficult and it's hard. And that's when our faith gets tested. And God takes Elijah through kind of a cycle of these events. So now he gets tested. It's, it, he's got this sweet kind of miracle of food provision. And now it happens, verse 17, after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath in him. We could read that as he's dead. 
So she said to Elijah, what have, I, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Again, your God, not hers. Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? This is an odd thing to say. Before she mentions the son, she talks about her own sin. This is an interesting way to bring your faith to other people that don't believe in the Lord. And again, the Bible's full of very different examples of how to do that. For Elijah, there's this situation where there's this daily miracle that she can see and experience and know that it's the provision of God, but then her son gets sick to the point where he doesn't have breath in him. He's dead. Sin looms so large, and the enemy loves to remind us of our sin. And I think for this woman, there might have been something where she just doesn't feel worthy. Her husband's dead. She's got this son left. Her only hope for the future is that this son will grow up and provide for her. So now here she is getting daily provision, but she's still worried about her retirement provision. And that gets taken away. And, and it's, I think, a logical thing for her to say is, who do you think you are? You're doing these cute little miracles in my house every week, but now your God's going to leave me with no son? That's horrible. And so she brings that pain to Elijah. And in verse 19, he says to her, give me your son, which implies that she's still holding him, which means he was a pretty young son which brings the tragedy of her preparing to die into really crisp imagery. So, she, so he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. In the ancient world, when you had a guest stay at your house, they could just set up a tent on the roof. and that, So they would stay up on the rooftop. The reason for that is that, especially with a widow, you didn't want any image of impropriety going on. So they didn't want that kind of... Uh, they wanted her to be able to walk through town with her chastity intact. So you'd see a, that tent up on the roof. So he lays the kid on his own bed, verse 20. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. And then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. This is absolutely incredible. So this miracle of resuscitation of life, we can't miss this or skip over it too quick. Not only is it foreshadowing of Jesus who conquers sin and death, but we get an example of God's power to do that in the Old Testament. So then you get this question of maybe he wasn't really dead, maybe he just, you know, was holding his breath to fake it or something like that. But the common plain reading of this is he was dead. And the way Elijah talks to God, oh Lord my God, there's an intimacy with Elijah and God. He gets up in the morning and he spends time with his Lord every day. And you get this sense of have you also brought tragedy? The first time he prays, he's asking God what's going on. This doesn't seem like it's right, Lord. But notice that the second time he prays, he actually prays for the child to be revived. Let his soul come back to him. Something happened between the first prayer and the second prayer. The first prayer, Elijah is looking for understanding, and it's almost like the Lord just talked to him. And later we're going to see that Elijah hears from the Lord with this still, small voice and just this whisper. And something happens to where he starts praying for revival. There's nothing in the reasonable mind that would get somebody to pray for revival when that happens. So he stretched himself out. The method's not as important as the faith itself. So some look at that as a foreshadowing of the resurrection. 
And really it establishes early in the Old Testament, God can and does stop death. The curse from Genesis. That part of the curse of humanity is that they're going to die. And that curse can be removed just like this. So it establishes that concept. It shouldn't be a surprise in the New Testament when we see it happen again. And the next person to do this is Jesus, which is why people say Jesus is the spirit of Elijah come to be with us because they saw and witnessed him raise Lazarus from the dead. It's interesting that Elijah uses the phrase with whom I lodge. There's a sense here that Elijah would pray for others to be blessed and that the hosting of Elijah is a cause for a godly person to pray for that person that hosts them. And just that idea that whenever anybody's kind to us, puts us up in their house, feeds us a meal, that there's the sense that Elijah is willing to then pray for those people too and return that kindness. Then he says, Oh Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. As a prayer, it's simple and it's true. There's nothing ornate or fancy about this, which we saw in Mark. You know, This is how God... God's people pray. Elijah acknowledges God that it's his God, that his God does have the power to do it, and he prays for that God's mercy. All in one sentence. The Lord heard it. An irrefutable image in the Old Testament that God hears our prayers. What if Elijah never prayed? What if you had an entire church of people and they never pray? How many miracles do we miss as the people of God because we never ask for them? And we never put them before God. And again, just because we ask for it doesn't mean God's going to give it to us. But even just putting the request out there, that appeal, and again, Elijah's not doing this for himself. He's doing it for this widow that hosted him. Verse 23, Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And it's a powerful image. Elijah could be saying to the to the widow about the son that he's holding and handing to her. But you could read this as prophetic too. See, your son lives. And there's this idea that there's an imagery here that this, this son being raised from the dead, and again, Elijah lays on him three times, right? He buries him three times. So you have just these images, and I don't think Elijah knows what's going on or how those images and those numbers connect to the resurrection, but they do. It becomes this wonderful image. Then the woman says to Elijah, now by this I know that you are a man of God. And he doesn't say your God. Here she just says of God. Personalizes it. And that the word of the Lord is in your mouth and it's, it is the truth. Sometimes it's the actions of believers that mean more than what their words are. Sometimes it's how we interact with people that speak more volumes than what we say to people. And for this woman, they were living in the same house and she didn't really accept it until she saw the power of God in Elijah's life. And I think that's why we talk about the power of God. It's why we practice that. She recognizes the mercy and truth of God in her life because Elijah was faithful in his life. And if the people of God are faithful in their lives, it's amazing to see how many people are affected by that all around us. So Elijah only gets the credit narratively speaking, for following God's call because at each step God told him to do something and he did it. And now miracles are happening. But miracles weren't necessarily happening before and now they are. So God's also building a precursor image of Christ. Just a few things before we get, you know, just a, he rebukes Israel as sinful in 1821 just like Jesus rebukes the leaders of Israel in Matthew 23. 
He stops the rain, 17.1. Jesus stops the storm in Mark 8. He multiplies the oil and the flour. Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes. And yes, there's a thing called fish oil. He raises the widow's son. Jesus raises Lazarus. He's caught up or raptured in 2 Kings 11. And Jesus likewise ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 1. There are tons of parallels between Elijah and Jesus. There's also tons of parallels with John the Baptist, for that matter. But part of what confirmed to the early Jews that Jesus was the Messiah is the mirroring and the typology that they had learned about their whole life. God prepared them for these things. So it came to pass, uh, chapter 18, 1 Kings, it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. In other words, he stayed with this woman for many days after this. And in the third year, saying, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was severe famine in Samaria. So the drought kept on. This means the drought lasted for three years. That's three years of crops that never came in. That's three years of starvation. Death has occurred at that point in the ancient world. So when those granaries go dry, people die. We always, I think God is at this point saying for Elijah to present himself. But remember before he told Elijah to hide himself. And I think as believers, sometimes we err on both sides. So we're either doing one or the other. One error is to always be hiding and never present yourself to people. Never show people your love for the Lord. The other error is to always be presenting yourself to people and never have like normal social skills, right? And I think sometimes Christians can err on either side versus what we see here with Elijah. Sometimes Elijah's told to hide. Sometimes he's told to be loud. And what he does is he goes when he's told to go. When he gets that nudging, he follows it. And that nudging helps him to follow a life for the Lord that actually has impact on other people. And I think that's such an encouraging thing. If we're always listening to God, we should expect that the directions from God will change over time. He doesn't leave him in the wilderness. He doesn't leave him with the widow. Sometimes he's in hiding. Sometimes he presents himself before the king. He goes wherever God tells him to go. Verse 2 says, Elijah went. The most remarkable thing about Elijah, compared to like all the judges, is when he's told to do things, he just does it. In fact, to the point where we, we don't have a lot of personality with Elijah. There's less of Elijah and more of God in these stories. Because it's not about Elijah. It's about God. And Ahab called to Obadiah, verses verse 3, who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For so it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them. Sometimes God tells people to hide. 50 to a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab had said to Obadiah, go into the land to all the springs of the water and all the brooks. Perhaps we might find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have, any to kill all, we will not have to kill all the livestock, any of the livestock. So they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself. The king of Israel is out scourging for food. Like, think about that. And Obadiah went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him. And he recognized him. And he fell on his face and said, Is that you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your master Elijah's here. And so he said, How have I sinned? Like, what have I done wrong? You're delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, look at how he says the Lord your God. Isn't he a servant of God? 
There is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he's not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass as soon as I'm gone from you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I don't know. And so when I go tell Ahab, he can't find you. He's going to kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord that, I, that what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water? Look at all the good stuff I've done. Now you say, go tell your master Elijah's here. He's going to kill me. So you get this interaction between Elijah, Elijah and Obadiah, two different prophets, both of them doing what God's told them to do. One stays under the radar in the middle of the king's court. One is in your face and bold, and they're both following the Lord's will to, make, to orchestrate this whole story. We get a sense that Obadiah is a godly man, but that he's living in such a way that he's not noticed or singled out by Ahab. In, in, in the sense that both he and Ahab are out looking for grassy fields. Like he seems to be one of the top people in the kingdom. So in some sense, he's, because, he's had to have become really good at concealing his love for Yahweh and doing good from within. We have a lot of Christians that do that. I'm going to do whatever I can from within and I'm not going to blow my bridges up. And they feel called to do that. Elijah could judge him for those things. We don't see any evidence in the interaction for that. He's just calling him to say, now is the time you go say this. And so as Elijah comes in and do, does that, Obadiah, by saying, my Lord Elijah, is recognizing Elijah's authority and rank. He bows down to Elijah. So he, he, I think as a young prophet, you recognize your elders. And so when Elijah shows up, Obadiah knew him very well, knew him by what he looked like. So think of the difference between these two ministries that these two guys have. Elijah's bold, Obadiah's subtle. Elijah is wild, living in the wilderness. Obadiah lives at court. And they're both serving the king. And for some people, that's really problematic because you think if the Lord's calling me to do this, he must be calling everybody to do this. And we just don't see that. Obadiah in the Hebrew means worshiper of Yahweh. There's lots of Obadiahs in the Bible. And this is the first one we see. Uh, at one count, people count 13 different Obadiahs. This is not Obadiah the prophet. It's too early in the timeline for that. But likely, all of those other Obadiahs are named after this one. It's a good name. Worshipper of Yahweh, Obadiah. It could also be read as a general term, like this is a person, a worshiper of Yahweh. 100 prophets. Uh, it's a loose word, use of the word prophet there. The use of that word prophet in the Hebrew means anybody who speaks God's words. So anybody who still holds the Torah as relevant would be one of these people that live by the word. They're prophets. So those that are faithful to God. 50 to a cave. Where were these caves? We know that around Mount Carmel, there's a ton of these caves. They're all over the place. David hid um, hundreds of men in these caves. So they're big, they're deep, and there's thousands of them. So they're hiding somewhere out there. To keep the horses and the mules alive, Ahab says. Ahab's shown weak in two different ways. The first way that he's weak is he cares more for the animals than he does for his people. And that's kind of a low thing. The other thing here is that he takes it into his own hands. Like he's got nobody left at court to go look for green fields. He's got to go do it himself. And part of that might be that Ahab didn't trust anybody at court because if you find the green fields, you're going to take your animals to those fields. 
And in the time of famine, that could easily be something where Ahab's trying to look out for the, his own holdings. By the way, kings weren't supposed to multiply horses and chariots. So he's trying to protect those things. God arranges this meeting as they're out looking for food. Um, Elijah is here, that message that he's telling Obatiah to say. The is here is actually presumed in translation. In other words, the message he's supposed to go to King Ab with in the Hebrew is specifically, behold, Elijah. He's not, the is here was just added in the English. Remember the name Elijah means God is Jehovah. So he's, Obadiah is supposed to walk up to Ahab and say, look, God is Jehovah. And so in some sense, Elijah's asking him to take a stand and name who the real God is, to remind Ahab who started the drought. And I just love this because his reaction to that is pretty reasonable. Like, it, there's a chance I say that to Ahab and he doesn't think I'm even talking about the person. I'm just declaring who God is. God is Jehovah. So when you say that, my God is Jehovah, Ahab's going to kill him because he'd already been seeking out the other prophets to kill them. That's why they're hiding in caves. So Obadiah had to live under that radar. This is a legitimate fear. So Elijah reassures him in verse 15. Then Elijah says, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. In other words, Elijah's asking him, Obadiah, to go announce the way of the Lord just like John the Baptist did for Jesus. You're supposed to just proclaim that I'm coming. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. So Obadiah survives. And then it happened, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? Isn't it interesting how Ahab blames Elijah for all the problems? This is easy to do. He blames Elijah for everything. This is what bad leaders do. They blame other people has nothing to do with him. The Baal worship uh, that would ask for sacrifices to bring the rain has been going on for three years, and he blames Elijah instead of Baal, who's the god of sky and rain. So Baal should be the one to bring all this rain. Ahab couldn't perceive the truth because he's already believing a false worldview, and that worldview creates a lens for him. And he can't understand that the reason there's a drought is because of his own sin and this Baal worship that's gone on under his leadership. And he just can't see his own culpability in the problem. So he answers, verse 18, I've not troubled Israel. Elijah instantly corrects the lie. I'm not the troubler of Israel, but you and your father's house have in that they have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. You're the problem. Remember? Verse 19, now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. First, Elijah corrects the lie. And Elijah, it, it's not about Elijah. He's just a messenger. This is between Ahab and God. And then he ends with the phrase, who eat at Jezebel's table. If you remember, there's a, there, in, in this time of drought, isn't it heartlessly greedy that Jezebel has a whole table with a feast on it in the middle of this time when people are starving? And, 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 as this is a quote, Elijah isn't saying Jezebel praised Baal, but he's saying in the Hebrew, Zabal, which is a one-letter shift from the phrase praise Baal, Jezebel, right? It's Jezebel. It changes the letter one. 
which again, if you look at the root word for that letter changed version, it means a round poop or praise dung. Baal himself is the Lord of the flies. Flies gather around the round poop. So he's actually saying in this time of famine, those who eat at the, at the, at the praise of poop's table. This is your problem. You're so filthy to the core. Your soul is so despicable that God's trying to teach you a lesson. Also in the Hebrew, at and table are the exact same word, which makes this an emphatic. Those who eat table, poop, table. That's the problem. There's these prophets that are at Ahab and Jezebel's place, and they eat at the table, the shukalon. And they're dining in your house. You're entertaining these people that are absolutely corrupt. You're turning on Netflix every night and watching garbage. That's what's at your table. You're putting filth into your mind on the internet. That's what's at your table. That's the problem. That's why you have a drought right now. Spiritually, the land is dead because the king of the land, the one who's responsible for it, can't take care of his own business and can't lead that house. So this is a bold thing to say and ask. The ratio of evil people to good people here, let's be clear about this, 850 prophets to one. And Elijah knows he's got the advantage. And I just, this story is one of my favorites in the Bible. The writer tells us afterwards that Elijah's doing everything in obedience to God, verse 36. Everything he does right now is what God told him to do. Do this, then do this, then do this. And he's keeping much more complex instructions than he did when we first met him. He's grown in his faith. That time with the widow, that time in the wilderness, God says to do it. He's just going to do it. I love this. So he's bold with Ahab. He says it like it is. At this point, after three years of drought, Ahab just does what he says. He's exhausted. So we get one of the greatest standoffs in history. God's priest versus the queen of poops priests, right? And they're lined up. And these priests, they were probably active in killing the priests of Yahweh, except for the hundred that got saved. Like they wanted that religion gone. It demanded too much. It asked for too much. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and what it means by the children of Israel there is he would have sent for the tribal leaders, the people in charge, the heads of household. It's not like all of Israel moved because there were people back in the, the villages and whatnot, but he would have called all the children of Israel, the, those that were the head of the tribes, so they could see this standoff. And gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between the two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal... Follow him. But the people answered him not a word. You ever feel this way? Man, if God's God, follow him. If he's not God, don't. Make up your mind. And people often don't even respond to it. So you have this indication that the leadership of Israel is just lukewarm. They're so dead inside, they can't even have an opinion here. There's a hardness of heart in the silence of verse 21. Elijah asks a legitimate question. Who do you serve? and he's talking to the children of God. There should be a clear answer to that. Remember, there's been three years of drought, and the priests of Baal have been looking helpless for three years. These are the people in the sky God should have answered their prayers. They've done nothing for three years, and the children of Israel can't answer that question? How long? How many more years of your life will you waste? How many more months will you waste? How much more pain will you endure? 
How much more adversity and, and division will you cause before you make up your mind? Make a decision. How long will you falter? In the Hebrew, the word there is limp, and it's strongly associated with a limping dance move that the Baalite priests would have used. They faltered in their worship. And we've taken that term in the English to kind of just mean faltering or tripping. But it was it, this period of time would have been to hop about. So whatever rituals they did to try to pray for rain, they would bounce around and hop about and be silly. And Elijah's kind of poking fun at that. How long will you falter between the two opinions? How long are you going to do these ball dances? They don't do anything for you. How long will you keep living that life that bears no fruit? How long will you do that? And I think the children of God, people that you, like we've had those conversations. I've heard from all of you. Like we know people where you have that question like, how long are you going to keep billing around in life, hopping around, limping around when there's a life to be led? If the Lord is God, follow him. This is the same thing Jesus says. He goes up to Andrew and Peter and he says, follow me. The difference is that they do. Then he goes to James and John. He says, follow me. And they do. So that claim of follow that we see here in 1 Kings is a strong indication that Jesus is talking like he's God. The idea is not just to undo what Ahab did, but to go all the way back and undo what Jeroboam did by creating false worship practices. In that sense, Elijah, when he says to follow God, is, means according to God's prescription. And the prescription for the, the Hebrews under Mosaic law was they're supposed to worship at Jerusalem. They stopped doing that under Jeroboam. They were supposed to worship with Levites as the priests. They stopped doing that under Jeroboam. They were supposed to do seasonal offerings, and they stopped doing that at Jeroboam. And they were supposed to have feasts and barbecues and celebrate with all the people of God in Jerusalem three times a year but it was too much trouble. So when he says, if the Lord is God, follow him, he's calling them back to worship. He's calling them back to that obedience to what God has said to do. And the people answered him not a word. In that sense, these people are, they're cowards. Because there's 850 priests of Baal there. Are you going to speak up when that lopsided battle is about to go, go forth? And Elijah calls them before God shows his power to take a step of faith and none of them do. So Elijah's like, well, maybe there's 100 guys in caves. He's got a servant with him, we'll see later. But he's the only guy speaking boldly the name of God in the face of certain death. Like Ahab and these priests, as soon as this little test is over, they're going to kill Elijah. You know they got murder in their heart because they've been trying to kill Elijah for three years. And here's their chance. There he is. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves. Cut it in pieces. Lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. And I'll prepare the other bull. I'll lay it on the wood and I'll put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it's well spoken. They think they have the advantage. And it's, it, here's why. Baal, the god of the sky. This isn't just a Baal, this is the Baal. He's like Odin. He's the father of the sky. He throws lightning bolts. So the guy that controls the lightning bolts has gotten an advantage in a start a fire competition in the middle of a drought. Further, notice that they get to, in verse 23, of the two bulls, the priests of Baal get to pick the, the bull first. Like that's a huge advantage. That's like letting somebody go first in checkers. 
or even worse, tic-tac-toe, right? You just gave up the game because if the gods see the cow is relevant, then they're going to pick the better cow, the more perfect cow. And they're going to give Elijah the inferior cow of the two. And if no two cows are alike, you can imagine these cows are pretty scrappy because there's been a famine for three years. So maybe they brought, well, it doesn't say that, but you just get this image that they're like, it's well-spoken. That's a good battle. Let's have that fight because they think they've got it. Elijah stands like the rock of ages here. I stand alone. It doesn't matter to him who else stands with him. And this is tough for teenagers to turn into adults. This idea of I don't care what other people think. I serve the Lord God Almighty. Joshua, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. Who's with me? And we see this as a repeated thing in the Bible. God sometimes asks us to stand out when we think we're alone in a situation because he wants to test our character. Really, he knows about the people in the caves. We know that. He's speaking for the fact that on that mountain, on top of Mount Carmel, he's the only guy that showed up. He's the only guy speaking truth. So in verse 22, Elijah points out the lopsided representation. Look, look, you got all the people. And then they do the offering. He lets them choose. Verse 24, he puts all of, the hand, all of this in the hands of the gods. It's a test of fire. And the people agree to it. So for those who are lukewarm, this makes total sense. Well, well yeah, this is rational. Let's, even if you love Baal, you're thinking, yeah, this is right in Baal's territory. He can start a fire. It seems like a fixed fight. Now, Elijah makes it, he makes it even worse for himself. Now, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bowl for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and you call on the name of your God and put no fire under it. So the one rule is they can't start it on fire. The God's got to do that. So they took the bowl which was given them, and they prepared it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Uh, this would be roughly a four-hour stretch of time. Baal, oh Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. And then they leaped about, or they faltered, about the altar in which they had made. So there, it's the same word as faltered in the Hebrew. They bounced around doing ridiculous dances. And so this religious practice seems to get more elaborate as they go through the day. The elaborate practices are, are designed to get the attention of their God. What does that say about their God? Why would you need to get their attention if they're, they're there? So this time that's there, here's another point. I don't know about you, but if I got to go to any religious service that goes three hours straight where I'm watching a bunch of nutballs dance in a circle, that gets old after about 10 minutes. So you got all the leaders of Israel sitting here in the middle of a drought thinking, I got better things to do right now, and these guys haven't done anything for three years, and here they are putting on a display like none other 350 people bouncing around, dancing, saying things, having these elaborate rituals. But what we can't knock on with these priests, I want to say some good things about these priests. They're devoted, right? Three hours of dancing? I, I dance for about four minutes, and I'm all sweat and tired and everything else. This bouncing around, this faltering for that amount of time, that's pretty huge. you got to give them credit. They believe Baal's going to show up. They, so, again, I think sometimes Christians underestimate the enemy. And we think people, if only we could convince them. They're convinced. What needs to happen is their heart needs to break. Something has to confound them. They have to have cognitive dissonance to change their mind. It says there's no voice. 
an indication that there's just a deadness here. That's the core of the problem when you take human religion is there's nothing spiritual behind it. And I'm sure this is one of those things. And then they leaped. In, in a, this is an elaboration of what they're doing. If they can't see anything happen with the prayers, they add to it. This is the problem with dead religions. If the spirit isn't there, you just add elaboration. You know, throw on some lights, put out the music, create the situation even if it's not there. Remember the question in verse 21 was how long? And the answer is from breakfast till lunch. That's how long they're going to sit and be lukewarm. Uh, there's a pathos here that they're just sitting around waiting for this to happen. With probably at some point their faith in Baal just getting drained. Maybe Baal isn't really there. So I can sympathize with the av average person that says, why am I sitting here through this nonsense? Why am I waiting for nothing to happen when there's nothing happening? Or even turning to my wife and saying, look, honey, now they're leaping. Right, here they go again. What's next? What do they got to do? Any emotionalized religion is obligated to keep going until the emotion happens. And despite the empty feedback, they have to keep ramping it up to get the same emotion. That's the problem when you don't use your brain, is that this happens. So how long is the question? How long will they put up with it? How long is false worship going to be tolerated? How much do they have to sit and endure? They've been in famine and starvation and death for three years. How long are you going to put up with these priests? They give you nothing. They feed nobody. And there's a spiritual deadness to them. So Elijah waits quietly for hours upon hours. And eventually God tells him, probably with that still small voice, okay, Elijah, start making fun of him. And I love this. <laughs> this is my favorite thing. And so it was at noon. So he's waited a good long time, given him a fair chance. If he mocked them at the beginning, they would say, well, Baal's not responding because you're disrespecting him. He actually shows some respect for a few hours here. But at noon... Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's meditating, or he's busy, or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's sleeping, and you have to wake him up. So they cried aloud, they get louder, and they cut themselves. That's an odd thing thrown in there, isn't it? As was their custom. This is what they did. We get this glimpse inside ball worship with knives and lances. So slashes and pokes until the blood gushed out of them. Some of these priests would die from blood loss, especially in a famine. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Apparently, there's no time limit on this competition. So they get from breakfast till supper now. But between lunch and supper, Elijah's just mocking them the whole time. Why is he doing that? Is he trying to be mean or disrespectful or trigger them? No. He's trying to point out how ridiculous their belief system is. It's empty and false. And he's on the mountain where they're praying for lightning bolts. Like, there's a boldness to what he's saying, too. Like, if Baal's real, maybe the lightning bolt hits Elijah first and then the altar. But Elijah knows that's not going to happen, so he mocks them. The word mockery there in the English means exactly what we think it means. He made fun of them mercilessly. He went after the ridiculous belief systems because the belief systems were ridiculous. Hatal Elijah Hatal. It's actually in the emphatic. He mocks or derides them or makes light of things. Your God is worthless. And he says it with his mouth. 
they start crying louder in part to overwhelm the voice of the one guy over there that keeps mocking them. So as they're going around the little circle, I'm sure they came around to where they were closer to Elijah and they could hear his mockery and they just start shouting louder to drown him out. I've seen things like this. People tend to just try to drown out the truth if they don't want to hear it. That had to be aggravating because Elijah told them to cry louder and then in verse 28, they actually do what he says, right? They take him up on his offer. He never tells them to cut themselves. We don't have a record of that. When a godly person pokes fun at empty worship, that's us speaking truth. And to do it with grace and love, like I like that he gave them three hours to, or four hours in the morning to do their darndest with that worldview. Go ahead and try. I'll stay out of the way. But when they're attacking the belief system, they're actually trying to help the person. Don't you see how empty this is? So and not only that, but as they start cutting themselves, he's actually kind of taking verbally, pointing out, you're not doing anything that's helping you. He is busy. Baal's not omnipowerful. He's on a journey. He's not omnipresent. He's sleeping, which basically means Baal's not a god. Like you're worshiping something, but it's not a god. So some translate that busy there. Is he busy? Is your God busy? The word busy there is also used for, it's a, it's a what do you call it, an anachronism for using the toilet. So is he busy on the toilet? Is that why you can't hear him? So that's one translation of that. Is Baal in the outhouse and he's occupied? We say, is he occupied in our household? Humor speaks the truth in a space where the falsely devoted are given over to corruption. Sometimes the only way to get through to people is to have fun. And Elijah's keeping his joy, his sense of humor, in the face of a, a grisly scene in front of him. The people that initially do damage to the Baalite priests are the Baalite priests. And the people of Israel are watching all this happen. It says, as was their custom. Part of what's evil about this pagan worship is that it leads to this, emotivism leads to self-damage. And it always has. Because at some point, if I try to get super, super emotional and build up my faith, and then nothing happens, it feels like a failure. And so physical pain becomes a replacement for the emotional vacancy of the false worship. And this becomes a really sad and a tragic thing. It says the blood gushed all the way to the evening sacrifice. So we can picture hours of this happening with, with Elijah continuing to say, stop it, knock it off. You're not helping yourself. Is your God thirsty? Does he need your blood? Why are you doing that? So with each failure, Elijah becomes more and more, I think, in their face about this falseness. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Here the writer interjects. So whoever's putting this book together says it, says it in three different ways, a triple emphasis. Baal has no voice. It's a dead human worship. So they make sure that we as readers understand that's the failing of false worship, is that when you need it, it's not there. This is the failure of any false pursuit in life, is that when you need it to help your soul, it's not going to be there at your deathbed. There's nothing that will provide. So you can be a fanboy of whatever you want, but that idol won't answer you when you need it, because there's no life there. Then you get to verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, notice how he stops mocking the priests and he turns to the people of Israel. These are the, the heads of the children of Israel. Come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. 
And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood and said, fill four water pots with water. These water pots weren't like a little garden can. These would have been the big pot pots that you carry that you'd fill vats of purification water. So they would have been about as tall as this table and about this wide, big. And in the season of a three-year drought, that's a lot of water. That can save people's lives. So get these four water pots with water, pour it on the burnt sacrifice in the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. That's eight barrels of water. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar and it filled the trench with water. That's after the ground sucks up whatever it can, right? So it should be obvious here that on top of the advantage that he gave the Baal priests, you know, 400 to 1, if you count the Asherah priests, there's 850 of them. He gave them first pick of the cow, right? And at this point, his altar's not even built up. It's been destroyed. And he says, come near to me. And I honestly, like, this is beautiful, you guys. I love this. This is what a godly person does to the lukewarm. Why don't you come near to me? Come hang out. Come spend time close. I want you to see God, but you got to get close to me to see that. And Elijah says it with confidence. He's grabbing their attention because across the hill is a bunch of nutballs cutting themselves. So come near to me is like, stop paying attention to that stuff. And initially it's just like, leave it alone. Get over here. So this is one of the things where you get critics of the Bible saying that what was in those vats was naphtha gas, which is a form of gasoline in the ancient world and that he actually poured gasoline all over the altar, and that's why the fire started. The only problem with that is Elijah likely didn't have a lighter or a match. And there's no evidence of him with flint. It's frankly just ridiculousness when you read things like that. Not only that, where do you find 12 barrels of naphtha gas? Just offhand. And you have to say, and he doesn't bring, him, he doesn't bring the water himself. He tells the people around him to go get the water. So that's interesting. So they happened to go get water and they accidentally filled it with naphtha gas. It's ridiculous. So this is one of those critiques of the Bible that you're just like, oh, keep trying. Keep cutting yourself and faltering all over the place until you realize there's a real God here that you're trying to take down. Go for it. Come near me. Then he repaired the altar. Again, they come near him and rock by rock. Remember, Old Testament altars couldn't be affected by hammers or tools. So he's just taking natural rocks, stacking them up. I'm thinking he takes his time with this because he just had to do eight, nine hours of that. Just builds a simple altar. And in watching him build the altar, there's this image of him rebuilding Israel. Right? Elijah took 12 stones according to the tribes of Israel. He didn't take 10 stones talking to the northern kingdom. He took 12. The image God had for Israel was a united Israel. And God still has that image. Think of that as an image that these 10 tribes would have seen him do that and go, oh, it's the number 12 here. Also note that when you take three times four, you get, also get the number of 12 with the, the barrels of water getting poured all over the sacrifice. By the way, and I, I feel like I shouldn't have to say this, but I will. When you pour water on wood, it makes it harder to light. Just want to point that out. So Elijah's not only giving them advantage, he's making this impossible. 
You can't do this. 12 stone, 12 barrels of water, used three times the number of completeness. He has completely doused this sacrifice. And all of that being water that would have been life-providing, getting poured out into the ground. This could be read as showmanship. Maybe Elijah's just trying to put on a show here. But I think what Elijah wants to do is drive home the point that there's an actual and a real God here because of what we see next. It doesn't matter what Elijah does to the altar because God's so powerful, he can, he can light this thing on fire if he wants to. The water means nothing to God. So it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and he said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and notice he doesn't use Jacob, he uses Israel. And the northern tribes were calling themselves Israel. But he just put 12 stones on this altar. So I like, Elijah just sticks it to people like that. The Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. And that I've done all these things at your word. Everything that's happened here has been because God told me to do this. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, an emphatic, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back and, and that you have turned their hearts back to them again. Elijah still isn't praying for himself. Like in the sense of like, I want them to know that you're God and that I'm speaking for you, Lord, because that's truth. But I want them to know it so that their hearts change. So praying for a miracle, I think sometimes like we pray for medical health and things like that. Any prayer, if you're looking for a miracle, should be combined with so that people's hearts will turn. Because that's the Lord's will. So when we pray those things, we're praying right alongside God. So Elijah's utterly convinced. He's praying for others. He does it every night when Yahweh has asked for an evening sacrifice back in Jerusalem. He does it at the right time of day, follows the law. He says he's doing it at the Lord's word. The only time you build an altar is when you've had an encounter with God and that ground is sacred. This is an instance where Elijah builds the altar before God has shown up. Unless God has told Elijah to do this, just like he told Joshua to build the altar. So at the obedience of God, we see him also keeping the law in that sense. There's no claim of mastery or power. There's no cleverness. There's no faltering dancing. There's no blood cutting. There's no shouting and yelling and making a big scene. There's no slain in the spirit stuff. There's nothing wacky or weird. He just says a simple prayer. That's what we see in the word of God. If God's powerful, he doesn't need the show. God will just act. So often the world does the, office, the opposite. They choose to follow without any evidence of power where Elijah does this thing and he has evidence of power before he prays and asks for these things. He's been living for years on God's provision. He knows that every time that bird showed up with bread, that it was a miracle. So he appreciated the small miracles, and at this point, God's told him to ask for the big ones, so he does. So this is the prayer of a man with a pure heart. This is one that prizes his faith. This is the prayer of a man that's close to his Lord. So the ability to ask for the proof of faithfulness comes from only a person that's praying for that with fidelity to God. Let me say that again. The prayer of a righteous man avails much. And this is what that looks like. He's going to God saying, God, I've done what you've asked. I've shown up. I've said what you wanted me to say. I've mocked them when you told me to mock them. Now it's time for you to show up and let the people know that you're God in Israel. I just love this. 
The people had been there all day, and now it's the other guy's turn. I'm thinking the heads of Israel are like, great, now we got to sit here for another eight hours. We're going to be here all night. But what a relief, what a mercy to not have to sit through more of a religious service. And that's dangerous for me to say as a teacher. Like, what a blessing to say we're done. And Elijah just gets up, he stacks his stones, he asks for the prayer, and boom, it happens. Like, at some level, these people, like, part of the mercy is it's over. You know, I don't want to sit and watch people dance around for an entire day. So when Elijah prays that single short prayer, there's a huge difference between him and the priests of Baal. One guy saying one prayer, mountains move. Mustard seeds do something. I don't know. I don't know the reference. Verse 38. Sorry about that. Verse 38. That's the Lord telling me, move on, Sean. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice. Uh, just super simple. Boom, the fire of the Lord fell. First of all, fire doesn't fall, it goes up. This is a miracle. And the Bible's claiming a miracle when fire falls. Unless, of course, it's napalm, right? But that would be a, a thing. Or a meteor comes out of heaven. Like, what does this look like? But the description is, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice. And the wood and the stones and the dust. It didn't just take the sacrifice. It took the stones. How hot does fire need to be to melt stone? There's an answer to that question, but I don't have it. I should have looked that up. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. And now when all of the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They're repeating it. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. They're not saying praise Queen Poop, praise Queen Poop. They're saying praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's real. He's there. And the fire of the Lord falls. It licks up the water. Also miraculous. Fire tends to burn what's above it. It doesn't tend to burn what's below it. But this fire is everywhere. It actually kind of acts like napalm a little bit. We're going to get done. There's all these great spiritual lessons here, and you're going to be all like, okay, how did the fire work? They came close in verse 30, so they're close enough to feel the heat that would burn stones. And I don't know, but when I go to a campfire, like you get too close to that fire and it's a little too big, I can feel my whiskers start to shrivel up and get burnt, and then you kind of back off as quick as you can. I got a feeling as they drew close, and he's like, come closer, come closer. And he says this prayer so they can all hear him, and then boom, it happens, and they had to like step back a notch. And they fall on their faces. Praise the Lord. The Lord, he is God. To a person, the heads of Israel bow. There's no, there's no split group in verse 39. It talks about all of the people saw it. Remember, the people are the children of God, children of Israel. There's also these priests of Baal over there that aren't acting that way. So that's the split, if anything. It's amazing. If I were a priest of Baal and just spent a whole day dancing... And then I saw this guy do that thing with the prayer and the fire, boom, it's gone. I would switch religions. And yet millions of people don't switch religions because they're so convinced of what they're doing. So unquestionable act of God that turns the people of Israel in a good direction. And they've seen all this glory. And then in verse 40, Elijah says to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, don't let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. He follows the law of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 13.5. P 
People that worship false gods need to be taken care of. You don't just send them packing or drive them out. You kill them so the religion dies. And one of the missions of Israel is to get rid of these Canaanite religions. Thankfully, there isn't a lot of ball worship left on the earth. It's seeing some renewal, but only with weirdos. There isn't a lot of Ashtaroth worship left on the earth. So this is one of those interesting questions is then, what did humanity do to follow after other idols? How did we rename those idols? But at this point in history, like this is a spiritual battle that the Lord's called this kind of religion to be gone out of the land of Israel. So Elijah follows the law. It's not that he didn't give them a fair chance to prove their God was real. They were proven false, and false prophets need to be killed. God's law then is carried out. Their response to God in doing this is obedience. And further, it's interesting because you, got, you still got those hundred priests in hiding. I wonder how the word arrived to them. Like, how is this story told to them, hiding in caves trying to survive? So sometimes God's people are hiding in those caves waiting for God to come, and they, because they weren't on the hill, they didn't get to hear this. They didn't get to see it. They missed out on all of it. Wouldn't it be horrible to be a follower of God and wonderful things are happening in your town, but you miss it because you aren't with God's people? You aren't with the people boldly proclaiming it? So God just starts to return the rain um, and claims this authority over Baal, the sky god. He's the real God. He did this with Egypt, too, with all the, with the plagues. And it was important that Israel saw who and which God returned the rain. That's why he said, come close. He needed Israel to see this wasn't an accident. And that's the point of the water. Then Elijah says to Ahab, go up and eat and drink, for there's a sound abundance of rain. There is the sound of abundance of rain. I wonder what that sound was. Distant thundering? A rumble? So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he bowed down on the ground, put his face between his knees. That's an odd position we haven't seen before. And then he said to his servant, go up now and look towards the sea. So there's this long season of evil in Israel. And it's interesting that after this miracle, Elijah goes to pray and Ahab goes to eat. This is not a good example of eating. This is not feasting with God's people. It's carelessly not doing the thing that the king should be doing, which is to repent. Elijah says to look to the sea. There's a promised arrival of miracle. So the great miracle of the altar, the fire that comes from heaven, isn't the consummation of the miracle. Again, this is reflective of Jesus. The resurrection on the cross is not the end of the miracle. It's not the promise of the cross, which is our resurrection at the end. So there's this period of time where they got to look for rain. They got to wait and look for it. So they, much like when there's evil in a dominion and Jesus breaks the power of sin and death on the cross, he then says, I want you to spread the good news everywhere you go and I want you to be watchful and I want you to wait for my return. So we see this again and again through the Old Testament, these mirrors, these types of Jesus, where it seems like the whole book tends to point to Jesus over and over and over again. So he went up and he looked and he said, there's nothing. And seven times the number of divine perfection, he said, go again, go check again, look again, check again. And as believers, we do that too. I don't see Jesus coming right now, check again. And the point being, especially with the number seven, you check as many times as it takes. The disciples asked, how many times do we forgive somebody, Jesus? And he said, should we forgive them seven times, the number of completion? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. The whole point is, as many times as it takes. Keep checking. So the servant here is nameless. Some people think it might be Elisha. 
Um, I think it's a nameless servant. It's a person that hasn't had a name yet. So I think to, the image of the church then holds in that you have a nameless person looking for the Lord to act and looking for God's miracle to come. And you have this, this kind of thing. So they keep looking and they keep waiting. They're alert, but not woke. And they're, they're attending as they're told to do what God's told them to do. Verse 44, then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. Now, I don't know how you get that perspective-wise, like holding it up and seeing that in the distance. There's one cloud in the sky. And he said, go up to Ahab, prepare your chariot, and go down before the rain stops you. I love how Elijah does this. He doesn't need the rainstorm to know God's coming. There's signs that show that God's coming. In the same way that Jesus said, there's signs that will be telling his children when he's on his way. So this small work of God, this mighty work of God, starts with a super small cloud doing its thing. And Elijah's like, here we go. This is what's going to happen. It's interesting to prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. When rain comes down too heavy with a chariot with metal or wooden wheels, you don't get down a rocky hill easily. You slide down the hill. So you can't really maneuver, especially through mud. Like chariots don't work in the rain. They waited for nice days to attack people. So many of God's works will start with these acts of small devotion, these prayers. The small faith of Elijah being built up into something mighty. Elijah's prayers, God honored to hold the rain, and now he honors Elijah's prayers to bring the rain. He does it faithfully. He does it publicly. He does it boldly. And prayer is the power behind all of it. Again, this wonderful image. Matthew 17, 20, Jesus says to them, I say to you, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, I knew it was in here, you will say to a mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And he's getting that from Elijah. He's getting that from that idea that when God's people pray according to God's will, it's God's power at work, it's not our power. We don't pray more elaborately to make things happen. We pray simply, and if it's God's will, it will happen. So the question is, how do we align ourselves with God's will. God uses prayer. That's an amazing part of this story. Why does God use our prayers? And it's not because God needs our prayers to act and do things, but we need to be praying to be in the right relationship with God for him to reveal himself in our life. So if we're not praying, we don't see his power. So we pray. And that's a blessing to us as servants of God. When the people of Baal are praying, they hurt themselves when the people of God pray, it helps us. It's a blessing, not a curse. James 5.16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Don't forget that. Like sometimes I'm praying and I feel like I'm praying for things like, Lord, are you really going to do this? But out of obedience, he tells us to pray, so we do. And every now and then, like, things happen and you're like, thanks, Lord. I needed that affirmation. So, this cloud on the horizon, this situation on Mount Carmel, you've got a godless nation and a total revival just happened. All the heads of Israel recognize God as Lord. And it all started, these signs of revival was a full-on rejection of the world. They rejected the Baalite priests. They got sick and bored with their dancing and leaping. And there's a point where God's people just have to get sick of what the world has to offer to the point where we make fun of it for the emptiness that it has. And when God's people are dabbling with the world and tampering with sin and having just little bits here and there in their life, it takes away the 
desire of the heart for a revival to happen. So one of the things that happens here, I think, is the eight hours of watching this ridiculousness, they binged ball worship and realized how horrible it was. So they return to prayer and they see God's fire with that small remnant, not really a remnant, it's just Elijah and maybe his servant that he references. Just one guy over here. And then their response is that they draw close to that guy all by himself. God's people does, he's done this over and over and over with the church over 2,000 years, that the people of God are drawn to that small group. There's a rejection of, and let me say this about small group. I'm not just saying like home Bible studies because I like my home Bible study. You guys are awesome and I love you. But I'm talking about like the Twin Cities has 4 million people. So even if you're talking about a church of 3,000, that's a very small cloud on the horizon. That's not a big group of people in the sense of how big the metro is. So when you want to see revival, go to where God's word is being spoken, nowhere else. Because you want to be there. Don't be one of the guys in the cave that misses all the good stuff. Be there for it. They reject sin and those that speak it. There's an intolerance for evil and they return to the law of God. We should know that right now the law of God does not tell us to run off and kill people. Right? The age of Moses is over, the Canaanites are done, and Baal worship is not here. But there is this idea that in the church, we insist on purity in the church. You can't, at some level, we want people to be pursuing God. Not that we're perfect, because we're not, but we pursue goodness for goodness sake. And God's prophet give direction to the kings, not the other way around. God's children faithfully ask for rain. And honestly, brothers and sisters, I hope you see this all over the place right now. God's people are praying for rain. There is a call for revival in the church, not just us, not just Calvary people, all over the place, saying enough of this nonsense, we need a revival. And I think God brings us through trials and tribulations as a world, as a culture, as a state, as a city, because we have to get sick of it enough to say we want better and we want to see the, the kingdom of evil get pushed back once again. So when that happens, the people of God start to say, Jesus is coming. Just like Elijah's like, step back, the fire's coming, right? Or he, he says, you better get down on that chariot and get out of here because the rain's coming, my friend. And we say that virtually the same thing. Jesus is coming. People get ready. It's happening. So we live like we might be here through our whole old years, but we pray like God comes back tomorrow. And people are like, I don't know if I want God to come back tomorrow because I got this cool thing going on tomorrow. Trust me, when God comes back, all of that becomes washed away. None of it matters. So when the church of God is united in holiness, in sanctity, in consecration, and in obedience, God sends the rain. When God's people come back to the Elijah, there isn't anything that stands against the people of God. There's no spiritual stronghold that stands up against it. Primarily because our authority comes from heaven, not from us. Less of us, more of God. It's very anti cultural right now that says more of you and less of everybody else but we say no 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 no, less of me so god can be greater just like john the baptist prepare your chariot that's the message to the unbeliever who's eating his food in the middle of a drought trying to protect his livestock and his stuff prepare your chariot buddy the rain's coming verse 45 now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was heavy rain. No miracle there. We've seen those storms. And Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. And he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab, who's on a chariot, 
to the entrance of Jezreel. So we're going to pick up with Mr. Zippy next week, um, who somehow or another outruns a chariot, and we'll get there and we'll pick up on what's going on. I think Ahab can't get away from Elijah, and God's going to make sure that happens. He wants Ahab to repent. That's the heart of God for the, the kings of his people. So with that, let's say a word of prayer, and then we'll have a little conversation. God, we love you. We love Elijah. Can't wait to meet him. Lord, we know that you've sent many prophets to speak your word. Lord, you've called us to be a holy priesthood to speak your word. Lord, we know sometimes you ask us to hide. Sometimes you ask us to be bold. Lord, help us to not make that decision with our will, but let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us our sins. Lord, forgive the way in which we were like the people of Israel too. We live in a way where we set up our own righteousness and follow our own justification when, Lord, you've laid it out crystal clear. Lord, help each person in this room to submit their life to you. Lord, may there be less of us and more of you. Lord, I pray that your holy rain and fire comes on our lives. Lord, we want the fire of the Holy Spirit and we want the cleansing of baptism. Lord, we want you in our lives and nothing short of that. So Lord, as we faithfully read your word each week and we do that, Lord, that's such a small thing. But we want to be close to you and present with you. Lord, fill our hearts with joy. Fill our hearts with certainty. Fill our hearts with just the love of the Holy Spirit. And help us to love one another as you told us to. Help us to tarry as you told us to. Help us to be watchful like you told us to. Help us to do those things, Lord, not because we think they're going to save us, but because we love you and you've already saved us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.